Welcome to The Wrap Up, a weekly podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap. Joining me for our last podcast together is my co-host, Daniel Goldblatt, our assistant managing editor, but sadly, not for too long. Hey, Daniel. Thank you, Sharon. I'm so glad we get to get out of here doing what will be my favorite thing, which is talk Emmys with Steve. I can't wait. Um, yes. Happy Emmys week to everyone. Yes. So you can tell our listeners you're headed off to another adventure. Um, I am. We're going to yes. miss you. Thank you. It's been a crazy year and a half. Um, I started like right before the pandemic. One of my first weekends was when Kobe passed away. So it was just like, oh my gosh, hit the ground running and it just, yep. it's gone by so fast. Well, anyway, let's make this podcast a good one then, huh? The best one yet. The best one yet. And in that in that spirit, here's what we have coming. This week, we have my interview from the Toronto Film Festival with Penny Lane, the director of the documentary Listening to Kenny G, and also, of course, Kenny G himself. But the doc's not what you think. We talked about how Penny came to the project and also how Kenny deals with the intense criticism and sometimes even ridicule that comes with his fame. Then, as I said, the Raps Awards editor, Steve Pond, and I are going to go toe-to-toe over his Emmy predictions. We're going to debate which category is the most difficult to predict. We might even agree on that one. I don't know. And whether or not Netflix will finally take home the top prize of the night. But first, Sharon, let's get into some headlines. Let's do it. All right. So I picked this first headline because it feels like a, like an okay story, like maybe not a big deal. But really, I think it could be the start of something much, much bigger. Mm. Christopher Nolan's next film, which will be about Robert Oppenheimer, the man behind the atomic bomb, has landed at Universal. Production is expected to begin next spring. So why is this a big deal? Nolan has been at Warner Brothers for 18 years now since Insomnia in 2002. And even though his last film, Tenet, did get a theatrical release, Nolan voiced his displeasure with the studio earlier this year when it announced that the rest of its movie slate would be released on HBO Max the same day as theaters. Nolan at the time called the move a sign of great danger for the industry. He was not alone in this criticism, and I'm left to wonder, Sharon, do you think this is the start of some major fallout for Warner Brothers? Well, I think it's a major loss. That There's no doubt about that. And you're right that it seems like a small piece of news, one uh, director taking his next project from one studio to another. But Warner Brothers has guarded very jealously its relationships with directors from Chris Nolan. He's one of the main ones. Clint Eastwood, he's another one. Todd Phillips, another one. And Patty Jenkins, uh, for example. Chris Nolan is the one who is the most doctrinaire about wanting his movies to be on a big screen and only on a big screen, at least uh, for a, a, a first release and was has been very vocal throughout that he was not happy at the decision by the studio without consulting with him or without even advising him beforehand that they were moving everything this year to streaming on HBO and HBO Max. When you have uh, relationships that are so important because these are people who drive the franchise business or you know, hit after blockbuster hit for the studios. I have in mind right now, Patty Jenkins, who, um, whose name came up in my conversation ahead of our grill conference, which we'll talk about uh, with Scott Stuber, the head of global film at Netflix, her talking about uh, the only way that she thinks you achieve cinematic uh, and filmic greatness is on the big screen. And she doesn't think you can do it on streaming. 
That is not a good thing for Warner Brothers because they obviously are having to do some serious talent management. And Chris Nolan taking his movie elsewhere is something they want to make sure is not the beginning of a series of departures. Yeah, I think didn't uh, Denny Villeneuve say the same thing about Dune? It's like he, he equated watching it on a television to like driving a powerboat in a bathtub or something. He made some really Well, it, he's great a analogy. thousand percent right. I've seen Dune and he's a thousand percent know, right. You do not want to see that movie on a phone or even a small TV screen. It is a massive, very impressive achievement. I have my own thoughts about the film, which is very, which is a tough watch and very bleak <laughs> and very much tied to uh, some of the themes that we w are living through in current affairs in real life. But um, he's right. It is it's a majestic use of all the tools you he has at his disposal as a, as a filmmaker from set to sound to light, cinematography, costume, acting, all, and all of those things that he wants you to experience as a, as a, as a moviegoer. And that may not be true for every Denis Villeneuve film, but it is true for Dune. Yeah. I think, you know, what also I found so interesting about this was, you know, we've talked so much over the last year about all the different options people have nowadays. And the fact that now you have all these streamers that are keep getting bigger and bigger and these studios that keep growing and growing, I feel like before what was Christopher Nolan going to do? There was only so many places to go. And now there's so much more competition for stuff. There's so, it just, the bidding war for everything is just ramped up so much that he's just like, all right, I'll just shop my business elsewhere. And I also think it ties a little bit into what Disney is going through with Scarlett Johansson, because I think they're right. going to feel the backlash of that in, in their right. own way down the line as well. This is very similar where they, other people are going to be like, well, if this is how Disney treats people, then I'm not going to go do, go there. Well, it's funny because- It'll be interesting. It's one of the things I asked Scott Stupri yesterday at Netflix because he came from Universal and really grew up at, a, you know, kind of the legacy studio. And I asked him, like, if you had to make a tough call like uh, Warner Brothers had to make last year, which is to say that they were not going to put any of their movies in theaters and just pivot to streaming uh, without letting the talent or their production producer partners know, I said, would you have done the same? And he was very diplomatic about it, but because he's, he is known as somebody who has done a very good job bringing his talent relationships to Netflix and nurturing them. And in fact, when I asked him about Patty Jenkins quote, which I did, he was amazingly diplomatic and said, even though she was, it was a straight between the eyes insult to what Scott's doing every day in making movies at Netflix. He said, you know, it's our job to listen to the filmmakers. <laughs> I was like, man, you are good. <laughs> That's the key, right? That's the key. You know, it's it's a relationship business. It is. Okay. So now let's talk about CBS. Has CBS, and this would be saying something, created the worst reality TV show idea ever. The network announced The Activist this week, which is a show where six activists compete, quote, in missions, media stunts, digital campaigns, and community events aimed at garnering the attention of the world's most powerful decision makers demanding action now, end quote. So you've got uh, Usher and Priyanka Chopra and Juliana Huff serving as judges. And the backlash to this idea has been pretty intense. Daniel, what do you think about this idea? It's, I, I, I don't know if you can see, but when you were reading that, I kept making the same faces all over again. It just <laughs> seems like, how are we turning activism into a 
reality TV show competition. I mean, these people think they have the right idea where they're like, well, we're just going to be spotlighting these these good works and these good mm-hmm. works. And, mm-hmm. you know, if if even, you know, a few hundred people see it and decide to get motivated and do something, then it does its job. But couldn't there have been a different format for that idea? Just I I don't know. I this came only about a week after the Long Island Medium's 9/11 special, so that still holds, you know, the the, the top prize <laughs> for worst idea I've heard this month. But this is probably second. Again, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of speechless else. about this idea. Is this sounds like an idea that should never have left the pitch room? Like, how do we combine, you know, the the good intentions of celebrities who really want to drive attention to their pet causes and put it on national television? Yeah. As a competition series. As a Yeah, exactly. And somebody said, I know, we'll do a competition. You know, and then, then somebody should have said, no. It's funny you say it that way. It's never the person who comes up with the idea that scares me. It's the person that hears the idea and goes, oh, yeah. That's a good one. That person <laughs> scares me. I want to know the person who who listened to the pitch and then went, "Great idea, let's do that." And then the other person, then there's somebody who's like, "I'm not sure that's in good taste." Nah, let's do it anyway. <laughs> yes, I don't know. I don't know. I, I most reality shows annoy me. Uh, this one, I might hate watch. I'll admit it. I might have to just check out one just to see if it ever makes it to air because there's a lot. Of- that could happen between that would be something if they decided to to kill it after all the backlash. Well, I think, or, or if there's leaks off the set of crazy, crazy shit that happens. Ah, <laughs> uh, reality shows, you're the worst. Mm-hmm. All right. So finally, this week it's that time of year again. It's Rap Pro's annual business conference, The Grill. It takes place this year on September 29th and 30th, and kicks off with a discussion titled "The State of the Industry and Beyond." with sports and media mogul Casey Wasserman and Los Angeles Times executive editor Kevin Morita. Sharon, Sharon, do some more name dropping for our listeners so that they know who will be part of this year's. Well, that was just the icing on the cake that we announced uh, this week, having uh, Casey Wasserman, who just not only has uh, the most important uh, sports management or one of the most important sports management uh, companies in the industry, but also now has a formidable music uh, agency because he acquired the music assets of Paradigm, which of course was had the largest um, music talent roster of any agency in town. And in addition to that, he chairs the Olympic Committee for 2028 for LA. So that's a big, uh, a, a, a really big conversation that I'll be able to have with him and the new editor of the LA Times, Kevin Merida, who just before that was running the Undefeated at ESPN, so certainly knows the entertainment space really well, um, and as somebody who's a former colleague of mine at the Washington Post, and I haven't had a chance to dig in with either of them about sort of what's going on. Beyond those guys, as I mentioned, I've um, we have a, a keynote interview with Scott Stuber, who's the head of Global Film, putting out about 70 movies a year, uh, greenlighting, uh, acquiring, distributing 70 movies this year. We have Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs, who are 
leading the charge around SPACs, these companies that are buying other companies so that they could IPO. They led the deal for Hello Sunshine, a $900 million deal for Reese Witherspoon's company, and their name's in the news all the time for other companies they might be looking to buy, including today came up um, Endeavor Content. It was something that uh, I guess Endeavor WME has to divest itself of some of its business for monopoly purposes. Anyway, they will be at the grill. Um, Stacey Schur, the producer, Van Toffler, um, the producer will be there talking about production. We'll, I just spoke um, for our another uh, fireside chat with the head of Xbox, Phil Spencer, and the head of uh, Take Two, which puts out uh, Grand Theft Auto. These are two of two giants in the gaming industry. I mean, really, it's going to be a jam-packed, you know, uh, two days of thought leaders and CEOs and uh, people who run stuff in entertainment. So it'll be really cool. So yes, it takes place the uh, last couple of days of September, the 29th and 30th, and you can get more information. Well, first, if you're not a member of the Rap of Rap Pro, you should fix that problem first and go to the rap.com/join, <laughs> or you can get the grill specific information at the rap.com/the-grill-2021. I mean, they're all just like to make it super easy. If you're if you sign up for Pro, it used to be that this conference was a two thousand dollar ticket. Ooh. We have changed our whole model and in and really focused on building our Pro industry community. And so now this event comes with the cost of one hundred fifty dollar a year subscription. So it's basically we're practically giving it away, which I think I'm very happy to do. I'm really there for the content myself and the conversations, but um, it's really, you know, once uh, it's a pretty unique chance to get up close and personal with those speakers and to hear them firsthand, really being grilled. And then you'll get to meet your colleagues on our Slack channel at the grill, which is a good way since it is virtual to meet and talk to industry colleagues at a high level. So yeah, that's how you do it. Yeah. I think that's one of the other big things in this last year, like so many of the event, these events that used to be just in person are now virtual. So now if you live in New Jersey, Colorado, anywhere, you can, yeah. you can still join. It's fantastic. You do not have to get on a plane to come to the grill anymore. That no, is true. No, no, though we should still require proof of vaccination just cause. Uh, <laughs> can we do that? That's a great idea. Yes. Let's make it even more complicated to have people <laughs> attend this event. A great, virtual great thought, Daniel. Excellent. Hazard. Yeah. All right. As always, I, am, we... I am in favor of vaccine. Hazard. Yes. Well, uh, yeah. duh. That's why I wanted to do it. Um, all right. As always, we like to conclude this first segment with a little something we call Wax On, Wax Off, where we allow our founder and editor-in-chief, Sharon Waxman, the opportunity to speak about something she is particularly into this week, her Wax On, and maybe something she's a little more riled up about, upset about, angry about, her Wax Off. Sharon, as always, the floor is yours. Why, thank you. So this week, my Wax On is to give a big shout out and congratulations to Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who completely- Still the governor. Still the governor, who crushed the attempt to recall him uh, bare, after barely uh, a year of being voted in as our governor again. Um, not only was I glad to see that he beat back the recall and the retrograde forces led by Larry Elder, who's 
kind of a scary figure to me because he looks like a nice guy. But when you dig in to what he ascribes to is really creepy, actually. Uh, also was a mentor to Stephen Miller, which right off the bat, uh, the uh, top advisor and um, Voldemort character in the in real life in the white in the Trump White House, uh, he was a mentor to him. So that's also super creepy. Like, what were the forces that created a Stephen Miller? Always does extra, exercise me. But um, Gavin Newsom beat the recall resoundingly, and I thought that was really important by a, about two to one or about three million votes, close to three million votes. I don't know if we have the final quite yet, but it was an absolute repudiation of people who were trying to, who are the decided minority in the state of California, right? Republicans are a decided minority in this state. And this seemed to be a way, yet another way, for the minority to try and lord its desires over the majority, which is not how democracy is supposed to work. And yet we're seeing this kind of movement happening on abortion rights, on gerry- with gerrymandering, with um, voting restrictions. It's all They are all different ways of either jiggering the rules or um, gaming the system so that the ironclad will of a minority can prevail over a majority. And that's what that would have been had the recall, which did not require anything like the efforts of, uh, it doesn't get anything like the turnout of a general election if they could if they could have pulled that off. So that's my wax on that Gavin Newsom won. My wax off is just that, the idea that the minority is seeking ways to undemocratically impose its will over the majority, knowing that it is not the will of the majority, is deeply undemocratic. And by the way, the state of California just... Uh, spent $270 million on this fake recall for literally no reason. That's it. Yeah, That's my I, I thought the, I thought it was the number was more. $270 million is actually... $270 million, but for what, Daniel? For, Come on. So the guy can keep his Where could that money have gone? Can we think of I, anything else to do with that money? I could think of a few things. A yeah. couple things. Right. A couple things. Yeah. All right. That does it for this week's Wax On, Wax Off. When we come back, we have Sharon's conversation with Kenny G. And the rap Steve Pond and I will drop some Emmy predictions on you. Stay tuned. They're going to all be wrong. Yeah, but he's going to drop them anyway. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> Hi there, everyone. It's Sharon Waxman, the editor-in-chief of The Wrap, coming to you from The Wrap's studio at the Toronto Film Festival. It's my great pleasure to welcome the director and the subject of a new documentary that's in the festival, listening to Kenny G with the director Penny Lane and the subject, Kenny G himself. Welcome to The Wrap studio. Thank you. I'm a subject. I thought, I thought it was the star of the movie, not just the subject of the movie. Okay, I've been, I've been downgrading. <laughs> well, I'm oh, sorry. Recording superstar. There you go. There you go. Artist, Kenny G. Well, this is, I'm sure, a new experience, but um, I learned so many things about you, Kenny. And can I call you Kenny? Is that okay? Instead of Mr. G, that feels- We'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow it only for the next 11 minutes. Thank you. Right. Um, what led to this project, Kenny? Like, did you know Kenny before this? No, I approached Kenny with the idea. 
I think, you know, so the idea initially came about because Bill Simmons asked me to pitch him ideas for music documentaries for the series he was putting together for HBO. Oh. And at first I said, I don't know, I don't really like music documentaries very much. It's a kind of a not great form. It's, you know, it tends to be very formulaic and you have to do sort of certain things and it feels very paint by numbers. But I said, let me think about it because I really like Bill and would love to work with HBO. Mm -hmm. So I thought about the idea of taste pretty early on, because I always thought it was really interesting how much our personal identity feels connected to our taste in art and particularly music, like yeah. much more so than movies or books or paintings. Something about your teenage years, you know, like something about the music you love when you're a teenager, which I learned about with you. Oh, yeah. It really forms something about your identity for life. And so I wanted to make a film about taste. And I thought that a conflict in taste would be an interesting movie as opposed to just mm -hmm. saying like, well, here's an artist that everyone agrees is good and blah, blah. Mm -hmm. um, so I thought about artists who were on the one hand very successful um, because there's a sort of like evidence in that, like obviously many, many people love Kenny's music. He's sold 75 million records and has been like a worldwide superstar for decades now. Um, but also in the world that I lived in, a lot of people thought of him as like a little bit of a punchline or just, you know, not not good, I guess. And so I thought that was an interesting conflict and I wanted to explore it. What in the world made you think that Kenny G would sign on? Well, you didn't tell me any of this stuff at first. I didn't. Oh, well, that's how I get it. A film about you, and you're going to everyone's going to find out what a great guy you are, and how talented, and that's it. That's how it's going to be. That's smart. That's smart. That's wow. not what I said. No, no. no. <laughs> Just to be clear, not, not true. Not true. Not true. <laughs> I thought that I thought I had an idea that Kenny might say yes because I had looked at that point at a lot of archival interviews and a lot of his social media, and it was clear that he had a sense of humor and like wasn't afraid to like engage with his critics in a certain kind of way and like wasn't afraid to like explore. Like I think a lot of artists are just like very sensitive. Very and sensitive. And so the idea of exploring like what people don't like about your art would probably be very unappealing. But I just had a hunch that Kenny was not so sensitive and he didn't really care that some people felt that way. Mm -hmm. um, so we approached him. Yeah. <laughs> Revelation of the documentary is that Kenny, you are able to enjoy your success and shake off the people who don't like your music, even if they are coming from sort of the, the highest, you know, the the sort of the people who decide what is great or not great in our society, which is like film music critics. I keep saying films and music, I mean music. Yeah. And that was a total surprise to me. I mean, I've interviewed so many artists over the years and one person I interviewed who always stuck with me was Charles Schultz, the cartoonist who did peanuts. Wow. And that was sort of the source of my friendship that developed with him because he remembered every criticism, every slight, everything <laughs> negative, including the guy at the post office who took his first cartoon, you know, when it was just before it was even called Peanuts and people sort of dismissed it and he never forgot it. But you're the literal <laughs> opposite of that. <laughs> Why do you think that is? And, and, and so, and what's your approach? Uh, wow. That, that surprises me about Charles Schultz. Yeah. Me too. Um, because, yeah, well, for me, uh, you know, I, I played, I always played a lot of gigs. I started, my first gig was in uh, high school. I played with Barry White, 
uh, and the Love Unlimited Orchestra. In 1974, Barry White it was the biggest, most famous, most successful male singer in the world. Hmm. Like, uh, and so they, they were putting a, a group together for Seattle and his sax player, I guess, got sick or something. And they had to scramble and find some sax player that could read music. So you had to sight read music really well, but you also had to be able to improvise in a soulful way. So I got, I, I got the gig. I won't bore you on the details, but basically my high school teacher had knew somebody who knew somebody. Right. Okay. You were a teenager. I'm a teenager. I'm 17. Yeah. I get the gig. I go and play this gig. I got, I guess, standing ovation. So right there, that's kind of started me thinking, okay, I guess I'm doing something okay. I didn't think I was the greatest sax player. because, And by the way, I still don't. I'm still practicing every day, trying to get better and better and better. I've always thought that way. But that gave me a lot of confidence that, okay, let's say all those people gave me a standing ovation. And then one guy tomorrow says, I saw your concert last night. You sucked. I go, oh, okay, wow. that's, that wouldn't, that was, okay, that, you were the one guy. I guess, well, uh, the other 2,999 people, <laughs> I'm going to believe that they know what they're saying and I'm not going to go with what you're saying. So mm. that's kind of where I developed my more thick skin. Just I've done that over and over starting at 17. I played so many gigs. So when my success came, like say in the mid 80s, and then I'd get lots of great reviews, but then there would be some that would go, I don't like his music. It's not really jazz. He's doing this. He's doing that. I went, eh. That's that one guy. It doesn't bother me. It's like, okay, you got your opinion. That's fine. I, I'm full of confidence and full of good reps of uh, doing things that I think are great. And plus, I like the way that I play. So it didn't bother me that I mean, much. Yeah, it takes some kind of real uh, confidence and, and a sort of sense of yourself to, to do that. But it, it, I still think it's it's one thing to know that there are some people who are, um, you know, there's the haters or there's people who just don't get me or whatever. And by the way, I'm thinking now, it, replaying in my head all of the, you know, directors who come up to me over the years who didn't like a review they got on the rap and who are just like wounded and there's like nothing I can do for them. I don't write the criticism, you know what I mean? It's like, I get it. I totally get it. It's so personal, even when it's not supposed to be. But some of the stuff um, aimed at you, Kenny, has been really personal. And so that's sort of the thing is like, it's not just a few people, but it's almost like people kind of make a thing out of it. Um, Penny, you you talk about. You, know, <laughs> I mean, you can criticize my hairstyle. I don't care. I like my hair. Okay, exactly. But, well, like Pat Metheny went on this basically this crusade about um, this duet that you did with um, Louis Armstrong. With Louis Armstrong. Uh, so again, not to not to pound too hard on it, but is it like you just get up every morning? You're like, yeah, well, that was. That happened and that yeah, I mean it's also just like I thought that that whole episode said a lot more about the people who flipped out than it did about Kenny or anything about his music and I tried to make that clear in the film. I thought it was really funny. Like who would be so angry? It's one wow. thing just to say, like, I don't like that song. I don't think he should have done that. Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. But to to write like a ten thousand word like rant. I thought it was a joke, but I first read it, I thought, oh this has gotta be a joke. And then I had my manager talk to his manager and they go, no, no, that was real. I said, wow. I said, can I have his email address? So I wrote him something back directly just to say, hey man, well you know what's why why are you so angry? Do you want to get together for lunch and we can, you know, talk about it? Oh my god. 
so it's just you know again <laughs> it's wait, 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 wait. because people take this stuff so personally and so yes. seriously and when you look at it with little distance it is really funny and i i am tr always trying to look for humor in my films i think that humor is an important part of life and um, you pick the right guy yeah exactly <laughs> so yeah i thought that i thought if anything it was just really funny that it was um something a conflict that i thought would be fun to explore yeah. I mean, and i think there's real stuff in it like well, there's yeah. stuff that matters to people you know and i, I wanted to explore that too well you know i've got clive davis on my side saying this yeah, is a piece of music you know that's we love this i've got david foster producing it hey this is beautiful i've got the louis armstrong foundation going we love it we're giving the money back to the foundation from the song. Everybody loves it. One guy has a rant about it, and what am I going to go do? Go? Maybe we should rethink that. Of course not. It's just one guy. Just got you know. Maybe he woke up on the wrong I mean, side. It's kind of a great lesson to for for anybody who think thinks that other people get to define who you are and what you're worth. Well, you know, I'm, unfortunately, most people in the world, our whole identity of ourselves are based on what other people think of us. And most people are narcissists anyway. They're all thinking about themselves. We all think about ourselves mostly. So if you're waiting for somebody else to give you your view of yourself because they're telling you what they think of you, I mean, you're, you're doomed to be miserable. So I, I know who I am, I know what I do. Um, and I got about 95% of that coming out. And there's the 5% that just does get sensitive, but um, the other 95% is pretty is a lot smarter and I can talk myself out of like getting depressed over that kind of stuff. Well, who are your favorite artists, Kenny? Uh, my artists are the old school guys. I mean, I'm a Stan Getz fan. I'm a John Coltrane fan. So these are names that a lot of people that hear, hear my music wouldn't even know. You know, they, they come to me and go, oh, we really love you. You're, you're like our favorite jazz artist. I say, well, have you ever listened to the guys I listen to? Like, you know, Cannonball Adderley and Dexter Gordon and you know, Coltrane and Miles Davis and all those great players. No, no, we don't know those people. Check them, check them out. So mm -hmm. I really love that. Um, you know, I like great singers. I mean, I'm a fan of Celine Dion. I played on one of her records. She's a fantastic singer, beautiful voice, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of stuff. I love talent. Um, Are you still working with Kanye? Kanye, I'm very friendly with Kanye. He's, he, um, well, because of the thing I did for Valentine's Day, uh, we became friends. I played on one of his records, which was awesome. Um, for a while, I was in the inner circle, going into the studio with him and hanging out, and it was it was really cool. He could not have been a nicer guy. Really fun to be around. And you but know, that's not a combination. I think most people would no. keep their heads around. <laughs> well, but that's the uh, genius of Kanye, yeah. isn't it? I mean, you know, he, he's really good at uh, my, coming my, up with unexpected combinations. Uh, yeah, sorry. my sax doesn't get in the way. See, I think a lot of singers are really feel safe with me because you do a duet with another singer, it's like, oh man, that guy sings better than me. Shoot, I better watch what. But there's a sax, like, okay, we don't really care what you do. Just play something that goes along with my beautiful voice. Like I, when I did the thing with The Weeknd, that was awesome. That one really was, that was a beautiful combination because he was doing songs with the vibe of the 1980s with that kind of rhythm. So when he called me for the, to do the sax shows, I said to him, I said, bro, you picked the right guy. I'm, I can, this is something I could do in my sleep. So we, we had a really good time working together. And again, you wouldn't think, why, why would the weekend be calling me? And I said to him, actually, what, he said something to me that didn't hurt my feelings. We were sitting in this, um, in this little box when they did this video. Do you ever see the video? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're sitting in this box He's sitting over there. I didn't know if it was scrunched in this box. He looks at me. He goes, how old are you? And I said, 64. He goes, you're old enough to be my father. 
And I said, I said, I'm not, I said, am I supposed to take that as a, as a criticism? He goes, no, you look so great. I can't believe you're that old. I said, bro, thank you. <laughs> I, said, I feel like I'm the same age as you. You certainly have a youthful spirit about you. There's no doubt about that. A, 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 a sort of a positive spirit that comes with uh, usually gets beaten down, you know, with time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would say just like from my point of view, like starting out with this kind of conceptual idea about taste and this conflict and what it would say intellectually. Then I met Kenny and then the film became as much about just trying to accurately represent like what a per what kind of person he is, you know, as many character driven documentaries do as well. So that was really a huge bonus for me. You know, I could have made the film about Kenny if you weren't a uh, happy, fun, mm -hmm. funny person. Still could have been an interesting film, but it really added a lot. And it was such fun for me to get to know him. And I was very inspired by his attitude. Like it's all just like very psychologically healthy in my mind. And mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of artists are sort of tortured and tormented and think that that's like an important part of being an artist. And it was such a breath of fresh air to be around someone who just Thank likes you, himself right. and is happy. What a joy. Well, your, your yeah. team is. Their team was so fun because I, I was nervous about doing it only for the fact that I thought it would be really intrusive. I'd have all these people around me for right. a lot, a lot of time, and maybe I don't like them. You know, it's like, ugh. But Penny's so easy to talk to, and Gabriel and the rest of her crew were so easy, and they were so kind and respectful all the time, saying, "Hey, listen, can we come in your dressing room and film you doing this?" But if you say no, it's no big deal. So it was always like that. If you say no, it's no big deal. So most of the time I said yes, because I liked the way they asked. And so <laughs> yes. we got a lot of stuff that probably I wouldn't have said yes to, but the way their personalities were and the way that she approached it was great. And I, I, I liked the film because I like seeing people being honest about it. Like it starts off with the critics talking about this and that, it ends. I Is that so painful for you to watch? Um, you know, the only painful parts for me is when I hear myself playing and I go, I, I should have played a couple of different notes there. Honestly, that's the only thing that pains me. I knew this was going to be the case. I was, like, I was like, Kenny's going to watch it and he's going to want to retract every sex part of the movie. I, I, when I first watched it, I saw this one segment. I said, guys, we need more reverb on the sax during this, during like 13 minutes and 45 seconds to 14 minutes and 12 seconds. And then Gabriel goes, we got it. We'll, we'll do that. I said, okay, I'm cool. Really funny. Penny, what was the sort of most surprising thing to you about what you discovered versus sort of what you uh, thought going into the project? Because documentaries are always like, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, you learn a lot and the idea changes over time. I would say just getting to know Kenny as an artist was the most revelatory part for me. I hadn't really thought that much going into it. Like, well, who is this person? You know, yeah. where did he come from? How did he develop the sound that he developed? And learning about his early years at Arista, particularly, where, you know, he kind of enters into this commercial world, commercial art world, which I'm also in. So I understand the different mm. types of pressures that go into that. And hearing about kind of this pretty long struggle to mm. kind of figure out like how he could learn how to articulate his own voice as an artist inside that commercial construct. I thought that was really revelatory. And there's a great sequence in the film that kind of leads up to this important story that happens on the Tonight Show that I won't spoil. Um, and I think that that story really helped me to think about Kenny in a different way, helped me to identify myself with him more as an artist. Mm. Nice. I, yeah, I mean, somebody who was ambitious and 
was yeah and also just gets it like it's 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 a dance like you don't just get to be like i'm an artist whatever i want should go like if you want to play ball you know you want to like have an audience and have a record label or have a distributor like there are ways that you have to negotiate that and trying to figure out how to do that where you stay true to yourself and you're honest who you are and authentic but also like maybe you're willing to do a few things you don't want to do uh, like know? maybe some photos that you don't like. <laughs> like my first album cover? <laughs> exactly. Uh, I thought that was really refreshing. And again, like I feel like a lot of um, music documentaries don't really explore the business yeah. side of what it takes to be an artist and like have a career Yeah. Uh, at all. It's all about the kind of ideas and what you're doing when you're alone in your um, studio. But yeah. it, that's maybe like what 10% of having a career as an yeah. artist really is. Yeah, there's a lot that goes to uh, talking to record company people. Like I said, Clive Davis was my my guy for 25 years. And you know, Clive is such a force that when Clive tells you something like, Kenny, if you do this, it's gonna be the end of your career, but it's your choice. I leave it to you, you're the artist. Yeah. And then you look at Clive and you go, okay, Clive, you know what? I'm gonna take that chance. And so then you're thinking, okay, if you say that, does that mean that the record company is now going to not support what you're doing because they don't believe in it? Or will they still support it and let you have your way, even though they think that you're going to make a big career mistake? So that, that there's there's a balance there. And uh, Clive and I uh, butted heads, but always friendly. There was never any yelling and screaming. It was just more respectfully, Kenny, trust me on this, or Clive, trust me on this. And, and it worked out really well. And but, but there's a lot of that that goes on. Well, and, an example of something that you wanted to do that Clive Davis said, I think it's a career mistake. Well, okay, it's my, my Christmas record, Miracles, 1994, comes out uh, in November. I've finished it. He says, Kenny, it needs a vocal. I said, Clive, I want it all instrumental. Kenny, it needs a vocal. Clive, it's got to be instrumental. Kenny, it has to have a vocal. I said, okay, get call Whitney, have her do it. She At that point, this is 1994, Whitney. Biggest career, biggest superstar. He goes, I can't, she, she won't do it. I said, okay. I call uh, Pavarotti. If Pavarotti does it, you got it. No, I can't get Pavarotti. So we go through, go through, go through. And he wants to deliver somebody that I don't think is all that great. I'm not going to say who it was, but yeah. I'm saying, okay, Clive, we're not going to do it. I said, I, I, I refuse. He goes, Kenny, this is a career mistake. It has to have a vocal. I said, I'm willing to take that chance. He says, okay, it's too long. Take off two songs. I said, I'll take off one song. He goes, take off two songs. I said, I'll take off two songs. (laughs) (laughs) And it comes out and it becomes the most successful Christmas record in the history of music. So later I go up to Clive and I say, Clive, come on now. You gotta, you gotta give me, you know, my, my doer. I made the right decision. He goes, no, it would have sold even more. (laughs) So that's a, but, but he said, this is a career mistake. And I said, I, I can't. Here's why. I just knew from going to Christmas parties. Right. You don't always want the vocals. They're <laughs> awful music. It's like you hear a polka version of this, and then you've got a little bit of Johnny Mathis, which sounds okay. A little Nat King Cole, that's great. But then there's all this stuff. They soup up this mix, and it's like, wait a minute. I was just getting in the Christmas vibe. I'm going to make a Christmas record. You start it at the beginning. You play it to the end, and it's just going to make you feel warm and happy. And I'm Jewish, so I, I know how to do this stuff. Yeah, that makes real sense to me. Uh, <laughs> that's really cool. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Those are really, really interesting stories. Penny, great job on the film. 
Kenny, it was great to get to know you through Penny's work. It's like it, it I had and also like props to you for being that positive presence and sort of showing how you sustain your work. Oh, I know there's one last thing I want to ask you. What else do you, Kenny, want to do in your career? You're 64, as you say, you've sold 75 million albums. You don't have to lift a pinky for the rest of your life, but I presume that's not what you're made of. It's funny, the pinkies, these, this is the hardest part about playing the sax. Yeah, right. They got to cover so many different keys. Okay, okay, come on. All right, but so, um, no, um, you know, I wouldn't mind uh, scoring a, a, a film. I wouldn't mind scoring a film. Ah, you talked about that in the documentary that you have in your mind to score. Yeah, my son is doing it now, and I, I, I think he's going to beat me to the well, He's already beat me to the punch, but I'd like to do that. And uh, I, I asked Penny if I could do the music for my movie, and she said no. So it's like, okay, I'm used to that. Well, well, I will say you're in the right place. It's Toronto Film Festival, so chances are you could meet a director who's looking for somebody to score. score well, we put together the package. I mean, the film ends with some propositions for the types of movies that Kenny has already oh, oh. written pieces for. Oh, that's, so that's right. 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 So I couldn't have it more uh, Thank appealing. Thank you, Kenny. <laughs> I wonder who's going to direct the movie that I get to do the music for. Literally, I'm requesting Ron Howard. So we'll oh, it was, wasn't that? Yeah, that's true. Well, well we can get you his number. Okay. Thank you Thank so you. much for joining us the Tipsto. Congrats on the film, listening to Kenny G. Penny Lane, congrats. Kenny, keep on, keep on blowing, man. Thank you, Sharon. I appreciate <laughs> that. It's only fitting that my final segment as co-host of the wrap-up is my favorite one. The Raps Awards editor, Steve Pond, is here. We're going to have a little Emmy predictions fun. Thanks for being here, Steve. Sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be your last. I know the final guest. It'll be like a trivia question in somewhere. All right. So um, it feels like the theme this year, particularly in the acting and the writing and directing categories, is that we have so many nominees from one show. Will they cancel each other out or is one going to rise above the rest? When you were making your Emmy picks, how did you sort of reconcile that? Yeah, I mean it's it's definitely it's definitely a problem for shows like Ted Lasso and and Handmaid's Tale and you know and it's it's especially in the in the directing and writing categories because if you look back you know Ted Lasso has three of the directing nominations. It's been almost a decade since a show with with multiple nominations won in that category. Um, so in in instances like that, I just thought. Ted Lasso is going to split the vote between these three episodes and something else is going to get it. In other instances, like, you know, Ted Lasso has four supporting actors nominated. I feel like Brett Goldstein is such a, a breakout character that probably the Ted Lasso vote will mostly go to him and that'll probably be enough. Um, so it just, you know, it depends on, on the category and is there is there a clear number one among these you know these three or these four people who could split the vote yeah i think you make a good point that ted lasso is an interesting example um but there's a few other categories where this like those handmaid's tale nominations it's not going to win anything i don't think yeah no i mean i, I think that it is a problem for handmaid's tale that they have you know that they have four supporting actor nominees in the same category. It's just- yeah. I think the momentum for that show in general has kind of waned mm -hmm. over the years. Yeah, it's still I mean, pretty good, but- Yeah, it it had its year to win 
to win a lot in 2017, and it hasn't shown that kind of Emmy strength since then. Yeah, I agree. All right. So when you were doing your picks, you're doing your Emmy picks, which was the easiest category to do, which was like the one where you're like, oh, this is definitely going to be the winner. And which do you think was the most difficult one to pick? And most difficult, meaning that the most people in it deserve to win, not just like no one's good, so who cares? Right. But like, what was the toughest one to pick? Um, well, th there were a lot of ones that feel easy this year. Um, you know, it feels like in comedy, it's mostly Ted Lasso. You know, it's Jason Sudeikis. It, you know, and then when it's, if it's not Ted Lasso, it's probably Hacks. It's Gene Smart. Um, you know, in drama, it feels like it's mostly going to the crown. I mean, there weren't a lot this year where it felt like, wow, I don't know where this is going. Now, that said, Emmy voters always find a way to confuse things and throw in surprises. Um, I, th I think that the, the limited series categories are the ones that were that are really tricky because that is, you know, in, in drama series and comedy series, you've got a lot of things, substantial shows that would have been in the running, but they didn't air this year because of, you know, COVID. You had, you know, stuff like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Insecure and Succession and those, all those shows are not on the table this year. So that sort of watered down the field. In limited series, it was crazy. I mean, it was, <laughs> at one point, the Queen's Gambit looked like it was going to run away with everything. But then you sort of, you know, you had Mayor of Easttown come in and, and sort of show how valuable that HBO model of appointment viewing once a week can be. Um, you know, you had WandaVision as one of the most successful things Marvel has done in a long time. Um, you know, you had Barry Jenkins doing Underground Railroad, which is a massive piece of work and an important one. So that category, you know, Astounding Limited Series, that was a tough one. I mean, you could make a case for any of them. I still think... All right, well, wait, let's hold off on that pick because I, I do want to get to that one separately. But I wanted to give to you what I thought was the hardest category where you could throw a dart and whoever won, I'd be happy with. And I don't think anyone would complain about. And it's lead actress in a limited series, anthology or movie. And it's Michaela Cole for I May Destroy You, Cynthia Erivo for Genius Aretha, Elizabeth Olsen for WandaVision, Anya Taylor-Joy for The Queen's Gambit, and Kate Winslet for Mayor of Easttown. Right. There's not and a bad name there. I don't know how anyone picks and you could, you know, you go to six and you get Nicole Kidman for The Undoing. And I mean, there are a bunch well, more. Nicole Kidman's jacket. That's about it. Okay. Um, I mean, yeah, that's that's an insane one. Um, you know, the acting categories and also because there aren't as many limited series. So you only get five nominees in, in the, the lead acting categories in limited series. And it's not enough. Yeah, I just I think the lead actor one is not as hard. I think Paul Bettany's probably a lock there, and I think that's who right. you picked as well. Um, but that lead actress in a limit, I mean, I, there's no wrong answer. I would not. There's categories where I don't know who's going to win because I just don't know, and the, this is the one where I look at it and like that is five Emmy winners. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there was a time when I thought, oh, for sure, Anna, Anya Taylor Joy is going to walk away with that one. Well, then Kate Winslet showed up. And now I think Kate Winslet's going to win that one. And, you know, and that's not to take anything away from the other three who, you know, you can easily come up with a scenario in which in which they could win. 
So yes, and I think to go back to your other question, I think Ted Lasso is a good pick, and Jason Sudeikis. I also think Gene Smart is yeah. is another easy lock. Although I'm so upset that the flight attendant isn't going to win as many as it should, because Hacks is probably going to take a few of it from it. Right. I loved the flight attendant so much. I, uh, I think I think the flight attendant has a real shot in directing because I think Ted Lasso is going to split its vote there, and it might be the next. Um, the next choice. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that's probably it for flight attendant. I think that's, um, no, I, it's, I agree and it's right, but I'm just bummed. Like, <laughs> there's just sometimes where a show just ends in a, ends up in a category where you just know it's not going to win, you know, like Kaylee Cuoco. I, I actually watched the flight attendant a second time recently and it's just as good. And I was just like, she has no chance of being Gene smart. No. All right. So let's go over to best drama where Netflix has been nominated many, many times. House of Cards started it off back in the day. And Stranger Things has been nominated a bunch. And The Crown's been nominated a bunch. But Netflix has never won the big award. But with all of the shows that you, you've mentioned, no Ozark, no Succession, no Stranger Things even, it does sort of feel like this is going to be Netflix's year. What do you think? I, I think it is Netflix's year. Yeah, I, I think that The Crown will, um, you know, The Crown has been nominated for every one of its four seasons. Um, it hasn't won yet. I don't, you know, I look at this and I think what's what's going to beat it? I mean, The Mandalorian has a ton of nominations, but The Mandalorian, I think, is it's not Game of Thrones level. It's not the big juggernaut show that wins all the below the line awards and wins the big one. It, you know, and, and it did get, you know, it did get a couple of writing nominations, but, um, you know, I think The Crown got like nine acting nominations <laughs> and The Mandalorian got one. And and the thing that really kind of cinched it for me for The Crown was over the weekend at the Creative Arts Emmys when the guest actress in a drama series award went to Claire Foy, who had one scene in one episode of The Crown this year. But it seems like voters love it so much that, yeah, I think this is, you know, I think Netflix is going to win drama series. I think Netflix is easily going to come out of, of the Emmys with the most wins this year after after losing to HBO last year. Yeah, it does seem like they're in, they're in a good position to hold that. And, and it does, I mean, you look down this list and these are not shows that should be not like Bridgerton. I know people like it, but that's a best drama. The Boys, I like The Boys, but that's not... A, best drama it just shows you what kind of year it's been i think well yeah i mean it's like you you know you look at i have a list of you know what wasn't what was nominated in the last couple of years and wasn't eligible this year and succession euphoria ozark better call saul killing eve stranger things it's like you take them all out of, out of <laughs> and i know it's just the field all right, so let's actually go to what you know is my favorite category, the best limited series. You ended up writing a piece for the magazine based on a conversation we had last time right. where I thought that should be like the hammer category of the night. Where is my list here? I may destroy you. Mayor of Easttown, Queen's Gambit, Underground Railroad, WandaVision. Which did you select for that category? Um, I think it's Queen's Gambit. Um, and I think, I think that this was one where back in the fall it seemed it seemed like a runaway and then all these other ones came out and suddenly it was not a runaway at all i think it's a really competitive category but you know queen's gambit led all shows and wins at the creative arts emmys 
Um, and I, I feel like it sort of has the momentum back that maybe Mayor of Easttown had for a while. So, um, yeah, I think I think Queen's Gambit will probably be um, overall, including creative arts. I think it'll probably be the, the show with the most Emmys this year. Yeah, I agree. I feel like that was telling because normally in these situations, it's like it's like a horse race. Queen's Gambit rushed out to the front and then yeah. Mayor of Easttown just came running right behind it. And it's so top of mind. I feel like if White Lotus were eligible, it might've had a chance of winning because everyone right. loved that show so much. But it's so recency helps. And it's, I think the, to your point, the creative arts Emmys showed that it is not out of sight, out of mind necessarily for Queens Gambit, which I love. I, that was my favorite too. Um, so I have, I have high hopes for that. All right. So I don't, I, I don't have all of your picks memorized, but we talked <laughs> about your not. most, we talked about your most confident. We talked about your what the toughest one is. Did you have any upset picks? Did you have any picks in there where you went, I think everyone's thinking this, but I think it's going to be that? Um, I don't know if I, I, I had some, like I think most people are not picking Brett Goldstein from Ted Lasso to win supporting actor because there are so many Ted Lasso nominees in that category. I think a lot of people are picking Keenan Thompson for Saturday Night Live. Um, you know, he is now the longest running cast member in the history of the most, the, the winningest show in any history. Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I think that still the, the Ted Lasso vote will coalesce around, you know, Roy Kent and, and so he'll, he'll win that. Um, you know, I don't know. I, I I was also a little, I don't want to say surprised, but I think also the in the same sort of genre, the best supporting actress in a comedy is a tough one too. You picked Hannah Einbinder. Right. Um, I think Hannah Winningham is just as good a chance as you know. Well, yeah. It's okay. Hannah or Hannah. I think the, the one thing I'm confident in is that someone named Hannah will win in that category. Um, that is a, that's a category where I think there could be a little bit of you know, Juno Temple is also nominated. Yeah. She could siphon off a few votes from Hannah Einbender. Uh, I mean, from Hannah Waddingham. <laughs> um, and, you know, and Rosie Perez, I think, actually has a has a shot there. Um, but, you know. I the- also think it would have been interesting. I think there's a little bit of like, is Kate or Kate McKinnon and Cecily Strong leaving Saturday Night Live? We don't even know yet. So there right. could be a little bit of like send off voting for them even. You no, know, it wouldn't I, surprise I think- me. I think if if they had announced that they were leaving yeah. before voting, um, you know, they might have gotten a boost from that. I think so. Um, but uh, yeah, but we don't know, and so I think voters will probably figure they'll have another chance. Yeah, you never know. I think I think that's one. I think that's a category where I'm less sure, but not for the reason of like there's so many standout. I'm just like I thought they were all. Those are a lot of good performances, but I'm not like bowled over by all of them like I am in the limited series one. Um, I I also think Hannah Einbinder kind of gets a boost because I mean, essentially, that's a lead role. You know, essentially, that show is is her and Gene Smart, and they're pretty much on on the same level, and you know. Often when you're a lead performer in a supporting category, you uh, get a little extra boost. That helps sometimes for sure. Um, all right, Steve, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, for people who don't who haven't looked at Steve's Emmy predictions yet, go to the rap.com, print them out, then submit them as your own in your office pool. <laughs> and, and you should do pretty well. 
think. Yeah, but like I said, the Emmys always throw in surprises. So <laughs> I, I always sit there on Emmy night going, oh, damn, why didn't I see that coming? And then, <laughs> But half the time it's like, oh, damn, I could never have seen that coming. I feel like, yeah, there's definitely been a few of those, um, which is I, part of the fun of the Emmys. I, well, I, I shouldn't say that. I was about, I, the first thing that came to my mind was the fact that um, John Hamm did not win for season four of Mad Men and um, Coach Taylor, whose name I can, uh, it's the second time this week I've forgotten his name. Kyle Chandler won instead that year. And I was like, did anyone watch The Suitcase? It was the best episode of TV I've ever seen. How did he not win? I So yes, there are surprises and sometimes they're fun. I'm still mad about that one, even though okay. I think John Hamm eventually won, right? Didn't he win he won, the last season? He won yeah. for the final season of Mad Men. So they finally realized they had to give it to him. Yeah, but that that season four loss is still stuck in my head. I wonder okay. if he remembers. All right, Steve, thank you very much. Right. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Daniel. Bye. All right, and that is it for this week's episode of The Wrap-Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. We'll see you next time. Or at least I will. Thank you.